0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Monday, June 5th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. In his new book, Voters as Mad Scientists, economist Brian Kaplan traces many ways that people deceive themselves about politics and how the rest of us pay the price. We talked about the book last month. You are uh, famous, internet famous, regular famous maybe, for uh, the myth of the rational voter, the idea that uh, voters – are not self-interested so much as consistently biased. Um, so so how does that play out with respect to your sort of simplistic model of uh, politics, the left and right?
1: This is a case where I deliberately put the word simplistic in the title, so there is truth in advertising. I don't want to oversell it, but my simplistic theory of left and right is this. The left is anti-market. The right is anti-left. This does not mean that all leftists hate markets. This does not mean that all right-wingers hate leftists. The word that I like to use actually is antipathy. There's just a resentment of either markets or of the left, depending upon what your position is. The thought experiment that I have is to imagine you just want to get leftists from all over the world for the last 200 years in a room and see what they can agree on. Or you want to get right-wingers from all over the world for the last 200 years into a room and see what they can agree on. What would the consensus paper be for the two groups? And I say the consensus paper for the left would be a bunch of complaints about markets. And the consensus paper for the right would be a bunch of complaints about the left. Many people want to say, isn't it, that the left is anti-market and the right is pro-market? I say, no, 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 no. There are lots of anti-market right-wingers, lots of right-wing complaints about markets. There are pro-market right wingers. There are anti-market right wingers. What is it that makes them all right? And I say that what makes them all right is not liking the left. The uh, that's certainly borne out
0: in some recent polling. I saw a YouGov poll recently that uh, asked uh, Republican primary voters what they what they like would like to see in a uh, candidate for president, and anger's of the left was like on the list uh, as as well as fighting so-called woke ideology. Um, but the, the, the flip side of that is uh, some survey data, and I, I'm not sure if Cato actually did this, but there was some survey data produced during the Trump years that saw support for free trade, for more liberalized immigration among Democrats skyrocketed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So important thing about the theory, since it's trying to explain Leftists and rightists all over the world for 200 years, it's not going to be very great at explaining the latest details and changes. Um, So, like, there are times when leftists have pushed for deregulation. Carter was the one who got airline deregulation going, for example. Um, But I would say that the idea that Republicans specifically want to anger the left is the kind of thing that my story says. Now, you might say, well, leftists want to anger the right. I would say there is some of that, but. Still, if you go and read left-wing opinions – so I read The Nation quite regularly – what's striking is that while the, uh, while the right is focusing on what we can you do to make the left mad – Even so, among left-wing publications, there's a lot more complaining about markets and about business, even left-wing business people. It's like the nation spends a lot of time complaining about Jeff Bezos. You are like, why are you mad at him? He's a good left-winger. It's like, but they just can't bear to to, to look at markets and see a guy making billions of dollars, making people happy, and just say, that's great, fine. They've got to go and complain. Or like Bill Gates can go and give piles of money to charity, and rather than saying, isn't it wonderful that for once a rich guy is using his money to help others. It's like, it's not right that one rich guy is the one deciding what the key things that deserve money are. I'm still mad.
0: We need a committee.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it needs to be democratically elected. It's that not- I, That I, mean, I will help select. Yeah. Yes, that's important. It can't be a rich guy. It can't be a business that's just doing good stuff. That's still- makes them upset and and you know it, it just is very striking that you can really agree with the left on a lot of issues but if you're a rich guy then they're still likely to get mad at you so when political scientists
0: uh look at this uh where do you think they get it wrong broadly when it comes to uh the political alignment as it exists or as it should
1: exist or what will influence voters to do x y and z great question I think most of what's going on is that almost political scientists are left wing, and as a result, they just don't read very much right wing stuff. So they're under some illusion that I'm a typical right wing person or Milton Friedman is. I mean, like leftists, when you say this, they just want to have an equivalence and say, well, we are anti-market, fine, but the right is pro-market. And it's like, do you actually read these people? There's a lot of very anti-market right-wing people. There's a lot of complaints about the right-wing or you know, so complaints about markets among the right-wing. Obviously, if you just go and read – Fascist thinkers, like actual fascist thinkers, fascists, uh, self identified fascists. There's a lot of complaining about markets, it's not saying we want to go and have free markets. It's saying we need to have a strong government to go and do this. And then you sense, well, well, again, a lot of right wingers want to say, well, then fascists are left wing, of course. And it's like, well, there's something that they have in common with you. It's not comfortable, but it's true. So like, what is it that right-wingers like about Mussolini? It's like locking up the Communist Party, going and getting tough on left-wing parties. You know, Even though Mussolini himself was formerly, basically the head of the Italian Socialist Party and the radical wing of it. But once you go and say, yes, I'm against these jerks, they're terrible, we're gonna crack down on them, that it really does, and I say, you know, genuinely puts you into the right-wing camp. So this is intended to be descriptive. It's not normative. A lot of people think there's some agenda, but I really am just trying to say, what is it that you can summarize these two groups with?
0: So, uh, you know, more broadly, you, you've written quite a bit about ideological Turing tests and trying to understand, uh, trying to help people understand their ideological opponents better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh,
0: so you say that political scientists broadly are left-wing, read yes. <laughs> relatively little right, so-called right-wing uh, stuff and so they're under the illusion that sort of you and you and I, for example, are all just yeah. um, we, we
1: speak for the whole Republican Party. It's they are us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> for the record, I am not a Republican.
1: So, um, but I mean, the, I mean, I've had people get mad at me for failing to go and tell libertarians to vote for Hillary, and it's like, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like, so with, with to me anyway.
0: the the ideological touring <laughs> test as a uh, a measure, a tool. What What's the benefit that we get out of that broadly
1: as individuals? Mm, yes. Well, I mean, of course, you might say that you, there isn't a benefit. You just want to stay stuck in your current ideological tribe and sh- show your loyalty. But if you do want to actually understand other views and then acquire the ability to intellectually defend your views in a way that is at least better philosophically, not necessarily more effective. It really does help to be able to get inside the head of people who disagree with you and to say what they would say. Uh, The idea of the ideological Turing test, uh, there's actually a great YouTube video explaining it in five minutes, but it comes down to this. Anyone can say, I understand my opponents really well, they don't understand me. What I propose is an actual test that is neutral in this regard. It's one where you actually have to go and blind go and explain views that you disagree with and then see whether people that hold those views can be fooled by you. That's the real test. So anyone can say, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I totally understand my opponents, they don't get me. But if you can actually go and have your opponents read a bunch of statements written by people who sincerely agree with them and you and they can't tell the difference, that proves something.
0: Of course, Arnold Kling wrote uh the three languages of politics which is sort of useful for getting at that understanding and it's not just uh and i i don't i don't i don't feel like you downplay this necessarily but it's valuable to appreciate these other views in part because you might be influenced by them if you understood them fully
1: Oh, yeah, that's very reasonable. So maybe you're not totally in possession of the truth. It's happened before that a person has not been totally in possession of the truth. So, yeah, it is very helpful to be able to explain the other view in a way that would be acceptable to the other side. I mean, I would say that my simplistic theory of left and right, I don't think it's not even an attempt to pass the ideological Turing test. It's not an attempt to go and describe views in a way that they themselves would accept. Because, you know, what I'm really trying to do there is to get a so you know, a common thread, such that, and you know, it's, it, like, it makes sense that, like, you know, the, you know, the left is very diverse, the right is very diverse. So when you go and reduce it down to the common thread, both sides are going to feel like they're being treated in a simplistic manner. Which, uh, as I said, there's truth in advertising. I admit that it is simplistic, but I am trying just to go and boil down what all these views have in common. And again, like I said, the thought experiment I like to ask is just get 200 years worth of global leftists in a room, get the Democrat, you know, get Joe Biden, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, you know, like Robespierre, get them all in a room together and say, all right, write something, a bunch of stuff that you all agree with. Right. And you might say, oh, there's nothing we all agree with. It's like, yeah, try a little harder, try a little harder. And I say, like, they'll, they'll write down a bunch of complaints about markets. And then similarly, get you know Hitler, <laughs> me, you know Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, all in a room, and we have to and you say we're not letting you out unless you write a position paper that y'all agree with. What we'll be able to agree with, we'll be able to write. We'll have a bunch of complaints about the left, and that's what it will come down to. So, uh, when you know when Arnold Kling wrote his book, uh,
0: the three languages of politics, which I'll commend to everyone, uh, but it, it he was not trying to say, hey, use this to. To either beat up on your out group, uh, he was saying, this is just a heuristic, and you need to you need to understand like the the sort of the core the more core motivations of the people with whom you are not ideologically aligned, but to the extent that we do want to use an understanding of ideological opponents' views, uh who's gettable that is to say for for you and I we, who are you know, you may be less than me in total possession of the truth. But <laughs> to the extent that we find some a group of people who's gettable, who is, uh, can be convinced of our way of thinking about the world, you
1: know, right and left, who's more gettable? I would say that I think that for, you know, for libertarians, the right is a lot more gettable. With the left, you basically just have a certain kind of technocrat. There is a technocratic left, those that are into Yimby, for example. I'm writing a big pro housing deregulation book, and I know a lot of my audience is going to be left wing Yimbies. Uh, but the problem is that there's so few of them. They may be vocal, they may be prominent, they're articulate. But still, if we look at the data, we see that the areas that have really intense housing regulation are the left wing areas. These people do not speak for their broader group. They are dissidents within their group, and I don't see that they're going to be very effective at convincing the normal leftists. They might be able to get their hands on the levers of power, but and I hope they do, honestly. Uh, But basically, technocratic leftists are possibly persuadable by libertarians on a lot of specific issues. Even there, normally the problem is that even when the left is really good on an issue, they don't care about it very much. So there are a lot of very pro-immigration leftists, but the problem is that immigration is usually like issue number 15 for them. So they, are, they You said they are, you <laughs>
0: said leftists tend to be uh there are so few leftist yimbies. How much of that is just driven by because you said because housing regulation is so intense in left-wing areas. Isn't that just the nature of cities though that they are more left-wing and more dense and so housing regulation is a natural uh Easy thing for uh, localities to engage in.
1: I mean, that does raise the big question about why our cities so left wing. Because, they, like, like if you just go down the list and say what is the largest population place in a Amer- city in America that is not left wing, it's really tough. Actually, you get you, you know, way down the list before you can find anything. Um, I mean, I think like I mean, specifically, I said it's you know technocratic leftists. Are the ones that are that that are that are gettable and technocratic leftists? The case for housing deregulation is so strong that it definitely does appeal to technocratic leftists. So when you say techni- but, when you say yeah. when you say technocratic
0: yeah. leftists, these are people mm-hmm. who are uh, perhaps more empirical
1: than people who are more ideologically committed. Yes, and into cost benefit analysis, into cost benefit analysis. I mean, in terms of like how ideological they are, how empirical they are, that's where this other issue that I was raising comes up, which is you you may be very good on an issue, but how important is that issue to you? I mean, one thing that's very striking to me is that even when I have left-wing friends who say, yeah, you're totally great on immigration, you're totally great on housing, Brian, but now let's talk about the thing that I care about, which is the minimum wage. And it's like, hmm. I mean, like, like it seems like that would just be a small issue compared to these other issues, but it's not the one that really rubs them the wrong way. We get another one of my friends. He's always talking about the man and you know, the man is basically rich people in business. And he's like, you know, the man runs this country. And I'm like, like the man doesn't want to have these immigration restrictions. The man doesn't want to have the housing regulation. They want to go and hire the immigrants and build skyscrapers. So why are you always getting on the man's case? And it's like, well, but the important thing is, <laughs> it's just very hard. And actually, this is a way, a way that I like to think about the simplistic theory of left and right. When someone, I've had many people say, I don't have, I don't hate the left, or I don't hate markets, or I don't even have antipathy for them. And I said, all right, here's my challenge for you. If you say you don't have antipathy for them, tell me something really great about markets and then end your statement without having any negative statement without saying anything negative about markets at the end.
0: Or on the other hand,
1: statement. yes, just have an unqualifiedly pro-market statement or an unqualifiedly pro-left statement. And you might say, like, how is the right going to have an unqualifiedly pro-left statement? Well, we know that a lot of right-wing people now love Social Security and Medicare. So just go and say, all right, well, hey, you know, these are originally left-wing ideas. You love them. Go and talk about how grateful you are that the left passed them and what wonderful programs they are, and then stop and don't say anything negative about the left. It's super hard for a right-wing person to at least not tack on. But the important thing is, or for a left-wing person to not tack on at the end of saying, yes, well, yeah, markets would go and build more housing. That would bruise the price. But it's also really important to make sure we have plenty of redistribution and you know, like that thing. I mean, which is again quite striking that a person would just feel so determined to claw back the praise that they are pressed to offer.
0: I am not convinced. I you know I don't know a lot of what your politics represent, even though you you lay them out fairly uh, regularly. But I'm not convinced that the right is more gettable on the entirety of the libertarian program.
1: Uh, I well, I would agree with that.
0: Okay I mean, it's, but
1: yes yeah, yeah, it's one where I mean the idea that you're going to get uh, get people on everything I think that's just not on that right but
0: you yes. so you're saying that yes. the right then is more gettable for a part it's of more get it's, it's
1: more gettable for something or other <laughs> and you know, and and that's almost the best you can do although I would also say that one of the great libertarian errors in particular is thinking that the problem is we've got to figure out the right arguments to give to the right audience. And I say, look, that's all wonderful, but you know what's much more important? Just having a friendly attitude. And this is one where you can give it, to show it to people of a wide range of views. I'm a big fan of Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the thrust of that book is you don't generally make friends or you know, or convince people with arguments. You first become their friends, and then they like you, and they, and they consider you a nice person, and then they care about what you think. But that is, is the is, normal order. This All is,
0: right. uh, you know, Milton Friedman, I think, used to, himself used to say uh, he, would re- he would be savaged for something that he wrote, and he would be relatively less savage for, for something he said on the radio, and he would be the least savaged for something he said on TV. Ah. Uh, and, and Brilliant. that
1: well, probably even less so if you said it in person, to no, your face. probably
0: even less so yes. to your face, which right. is, uh, a showing the, showing the world that, uh, one are, are, we're friendly, reasonable people. And two, that our heart is in the right place.
1: Yep. No, no one cares what you know until they know that you care.
0: <laughs> and, and also that for, um, on many of these issues, uh, it's deeply held. Uh, and and that uh, that I think is is at least one failing of both left and right when it comes to people who advocate liberty is that it's the sense that everything that libertarians believe in is a defensive crouch, uh, depending on who you're talking to and what the issue uh, at hand is.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would think that, you know, normally the left-wing reaction to libertarians is precisely you're just funded by the Kochs, you're just saying this to go and get money. Uh you know, like the reaction from non-libertarian right-wing people is more like what a deluded fool you are. <laughs> like, like, like why can't you just face reality? That kind of thing. I just, like I pretty much have never been accused by any right-wing person of thinking what I think for money. Whereas for the left, that is almost the go-to reaction. Right, And on this question of friendliness, a big part of being friendly is when other people are not friendly to you, you do it anyway. It's unilateral friendliness. No matter how badly other people treat you, you talk to them like they are your best friend. I have done Cato intern debate training before, and one of my first lessons is always talk to your opponent like they are your best friend in the world. I know this doesn't change their mind, but it does change the mind of the audience. Right, And in particular, in terms of what libertarians can do to improve, improving our arguments The arguments are really good, so it's not that easy to improve the arguments. Improving our our friendliness, improving our attitude, there we can go really far. Uh, You're fantastic, Caleb. But, yes, we we all know a whole lot of libertarians with a bad attitude. (laughs) Sometimes it's just they – are a bit aspy and they don't really know how to talk to other people. Other times is they know better, but they just don't feel like it because a lot of the fun of politics is the sense of incredible self-righteousness and superiority others. And it's your excuse to go and treat other people like dirt. Right? And, I, and I say all this not because I'm so perfect. Right? When I look back on my youth and just the horrible way I talk to other people, and, and what was the point? I mean, honestly, I had read Dale Carnegie in high school and I look, read it like, yeah, this is completely true and I don't want to listen because I feel like continuing to be a jerk. Right? But over time, I have tried to reinvent the wheel. And then when I finally read it a few years, reread it a few years ago, wow, like, why didn't I just do what he told me the first time? Why not just talk to everybody in a friendly way as much as you can, win them over, convince them that you're a nice human being, and then maybe they'll listen to you. Until then, it's, there's almost no hope.
0: Uh, You related to that, you have an essay called The Respect Motive uh, about how voters make decisions about their politicians based on their view of how much that politician respects them. Yes. Uh, Whether it be their struggle Mm -hmm. or uh, their humanity or some other element of them that this guy uh, gets me, understands me and respects me.
1: That's right, and in particular respects you more. It's not enough to, you know. I think that veterans feel like Democrats respect them, but still, which party respects them more? Well, Republicans respect me more. I'm going to like them. Um, this is uh, you know, like kind of the thing that motivated me. You take a look at Indian Americans; they are now the richest ethnicity in America, and they're also plausibly the most socially conservative ethnicity in America. Their non-marital birth rate is crazy low. Right, so you just look at all this stuff, you know, bourgeois virtue, up the wazoo, and yet they're 80% Democrat. You know, well, their Democrat Republican ratio is like four to one, all right, or maybe even five to one. And it's like it seems like they have every reason to be Republicans, but they're not. What's going on? And my story is this: Well, which party respects Indian Americans more? This does not mean that Republicans are going out of their way to insult Indian Americans, but still, like if you, know, if you were just to go and, uh, as an Indian American, listen to Democrats, listen to Republicans, go and meet them, which group seems to welcome you more with more open arms, which one will less so? And I say, yeah, pretty obviously the Democrats are going to be more comfortable at your Indian wedding, right? They are going to feel more sympathetic for your situation. They're going to just show, they're going to praise you with more sincerity, in a way that feels feels more right. And I say this is really a very general story. So you can take a look at different occupations. For example, lawyers are very rich and very left-wing. Hmm, well, which party respects lawyers more? Now, this is one that's a little hard. It's like, well, everybody kind of has some distaste for lawyers, but still, Republicans obviously have more distaste for lawyers than Democrats. Democrats have more of a sense of, well, lawyers, like there's some bad ones and some sleazy ones, but also some noble ones, some crusaders. Republicans more likely, uh, lawyers, let me uh, forward this email of lawyer jokes, right? So anyway, my story is you can sort of go down the list of almost any demographic and get a ver- get a good prediction of whether they will be Democrats or Republicans based upon which party plausibly respects them more. And again, you know, just to not have people misstate this, I'm not saying that Democrats spit on veterans or anything like that. It's a, it's just a matter of if you say, hey, I respect Indian Americans just like I respect every other group. All right, well, you just lost me because that's not how respect works. If you really respect me, you don't go out of your way to say that you know, that I'm just as good, that I'm as this, in the same group as everybody else. You go out of your way to say, "Oh wow, you're just so wonderful, absolutely fantastic." A good politician can, of course, give mutually contradictory praise to lots of different groups, telling each of them that they are the very best. Uh, but still, there's you know there's some rationing mechanism here where it just chokes in Republican throats to go to the lawyers group and say, "God, lawyers, you're just wonderful."
0: <laughs> I vote. You do not. I'm not proud of voting, but like a lot of people, I view it as defensive. And in you uh, view voters as mad scientists, or you you have a theory related to that.
1: Yeah, what I say in this essay is that people tend to think of voters as voting their self-interest, and I say that. What a wonderful world that would be if everyone just voted their objective self-interest, uh, the real story, I say, is that people have a lot of crazy ideas about how to go and fix society. They don't think about them very hard, but they're very convinced they're true. And they then go and experiment on us whether we like it or not. That's the idea of the essay. I mean, I say imagine that you just wake up on this operating table and there's some crazed guy like, like Doc, you know, Doc Brown out of Back to the Future. And he say, I'm going to help you now. And it's like, no, don't. And you say, you know, no, don't. And he says, that's just what you would say if we, because I haven't helped you yet. I'm going to help you. Um, so you know, this is not a general aspersion against all voters, but it is trying to understand what is what is it that goes wrong with voting. And I say the problem is that we, ha- we have a lot of power in the hands of people that are trying to do good, but aren't very interested in asking questions about whether they know what they're doing.
0: Economist Brian Kaplan is author of the new book, Voters as Mad Scientists. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.